This is it. This is the real thing. You've heard about it on the radio and seen it in the papers. Ten big acts for the price of one ticket. Behind this curtain, you'll see the Fiji mermaid, the giant red bat, the six-foot man-eating chicken. They're all real, and they're all on the inside. You'll see the Ethiopian glass eater. folks what are you waiting for admission is free to ballycast the podcast of the carnival sideshow and variety arts you're just in time we're gonna have a free show we're gonna bring out the strange people the weird people here they come now watch the doorway you'll see what they do you'll hear what they talk about they're all alive on the inside get your ticket and come in ballycast presents news and interviews with performers and showmen some important words of warning. This podcast is not family friendly. I'm not even thinking about it. So listen at your own risk. The performances and stunts described are not safe, even for experienced performers. Never attempt them without the direct supervision of someone who already performs them. Please use your common sense. And if you don't have any, stop listening now. Here's your host. Wayne Kaiser. Welcome to Ballycast, episode 137. Ballycast is brought to you free by Blue Ridge Entertainment, publisher of books, CDs, DVDs, and more for showmen, performers, and fans of the sideshow, carnival, and variety arts. In today's show, we're going right back to the start with Brett Loudermilk and James Taylor from episode one and episode two thoroughly unburdening themselves about entertainment. It's a good long ride, so settle in for a while. Play that funky music, white boy. It's Ballycast. Here we go. Keep your hands and arms inside the car and remain seated until the ride comes to a complete stop. Look out. Standing still, keeping the ground. You can't tell what will happen when they pass it around. And it's a bug. You got it, you got it. You're all on your own. Somehow it seems better when you do it alone. No way of ducking once it's been thrown. And it's a bug. You got it. 
Let's dive right in. I'll have some special notes in between interviews. The feature interview today is a conversation held in October 2007 with Brett Loudermilk, who builds himself as the freak prodigy. Brett is an outgoing and likable fellow. He's been heard from a lot on the Magic Cafe Forum, and he's been discussed a lot on the Yahoo Sideshow World Forum. My visit with Brett reveals a capable performer whose skills are already well-developed and varied, a performer on his way up who has already earned a place among sideshow professionals. His combination of youth and well-earned confidence unsettles some people in the business, but they and we are going to see him take a place on the national stage. You're 18. I am 18. I'm very, very young to be doing what I do. started with magic. I was five, and then got into ventriloquism and juggling. Did you have any difficulty getting professionals to take you seriously enough to train you? No. My first mentor was Dexter Tripp. He is a tightrope walker on the Renaissance Fair circuit. He does juggling and slack rope. I was eight years old when I met Dexter. This guy is so cool. He, you know, he... He's so amazing. He walks up an inclined tightrope while it's burning. Oh, my God. You know, you know, he was just this, this person that I was, you know, I looked at and went, wow. And I asked him, you know, hey, do you know anything about Sideshow? And he said, why, yes, I was in one. Psych- the Psycho Circus, I believe it was. I think it was the Psycho. I, I, I wouldn't quote me on that. Um, so it was in early 90s. It was on the uh, the East Coast, while uh, Jim Rose was on the West Coast. Anyway, Dexter was a performer, and, and he, I mean, did everything. So I said, hey, can you teach me how to stick a nail up my nose? And at first, of course, he said no. I mean, I was eight years old, and I, I would not accept no as an answer. So uh, about a week later, he finally said, okay, kids, sit down. I'll teach you how to do this. Took me a couple of weeks to be comfortable with it, but... Got a nail up there. So, you know, I mean, I, I sucked for a long time. I started when I was eight years old. I sucked bad. It's always comical to see an, an eight-year-old mighty mystical mysterious magician oh, or I something. Yeah. I figured out as soon as I learned how to hammer a nail on my nose that not only is this weird, I'm, I'm eight years old and I'm hammering a nail at my nose. That's really weird. I'm sure others thought so as well. Uh, <laughs> um, especially my mother. I mean, my parents are still, you know, not that supportive of, of what I do. They, they can't connect with it. Um, my grandfather, on the other hand, can. Uh, my grandfather was a con man. He, um, he was a Pentecostal preacher. He, traveled, he had his own tent show and traveled all over the, uh, the mountains of West Virginia and Tennessee down to North Carolina. 
and uh, you know did the faith healing and sold snake oil and you know the whole the whole deal because b- believe it or not tent shows like that they had people that traveled with them that wanted desperately to be healed and that that's one thing that that killed him you know he could not stand that because he knew that he couldn't help these people and my grandfather had too much of a heart you know one day he decided well got to quit so he came out flat out and you know, to his uh, little following uh, a friend of mine who is an ex-con man told me that you know to be a con man you can't have a soul you cannot have a heart whatsoever because the moment you do you're screwed uh, being as at that age, school is kind of where you live. You you took your skills back to school at times. Yeah, uh, known in the halls as the guy who did these things. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if you could tell or not. I am a bit of a loud mouth. I don't know. You you've seen posts that I've made on the cafe, I've, and yeah. and of course the uh, the Yahoo discussion group. I oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> I could stir up some uh, controversy, and I, my personal opinion is, I don't think it's anything you did. Yeah, I really don't. Uh, <laughs> it's not bragging if you can back it up. That's that's very true. But uh, just briefly back to to school and daily life. You know, it's a legend that the uh, or a truism that the magician is very skilled but doesn't get the girls. Um, you know, I've. I, I, I don't have a problem. Okay. <laughs> Maybe um, we should just leave that there. Yes. <laughs> There's not a certain personality type that goes, oh boy, eating insects, gotta go well, dating. Well, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's the tough part. Your uh, uh, alternate name, uh, you go by Freak Prodigy. Yeah, I'm, I'm Brett Loudermilk, the Freak Prodigy. Um, and that name was given to me by a guy named Gil Schuller, and Gil Schuller was, uh, or is, I'm sorry, is a uh, graphic artist in Charleston, South Carolina. And my first professional gig was uh, when I was like, uh, I think 13 or 14, and it was in a, a club in, in Charleston, South Carolina, for Alive Inside, the lure and lure of the sideshow. And, and the, uh, my background information says that was an art opening. That was an art opening. What yes. kind of art? Uh, it was all sideshow art. Um, Classic stuff, or uh, well, uh, there was uh, there was uh, Jeffrey Pratt Gordon had a, a quite a few pieces from the uh, Johnny Eck collection, um, including some hand carved puppets that Johnny had made and things like that. There was stuff from J D Wilkes. Uh, he's a, the front man of the legendary Shack Shakers, who is also a banner artist. James Monday had his, I believe, his Prodigies series on display. Serena Brewer had some of her taxidermy there. And was that your decision point? I'm, I'm going to take this and, and go out and make a business out of it? Well, I, I, I knew that I wanted to before then. I was uh, one of the youngest performers at, a, at the Renaissance Festival that I, I basically learned my skills in to get a contract to do a show stage show mm-hmm. and uh you know that's when you know when i figured i could do a stage show at a renaissance fair and and pull in a crowd and make money then I, i'm just about ready now if i've got this right your skills include uh uh lifting 
by pierced ears, I understand. Yeah. Uh, blockhead, glass walking, sword swallowing, uh, insect swallowing, and something which looks new to me, mouse trap on tongue. That it's actually not new. A lot of people, I, I, you know, I don't think it's a traditional sideshow stunt. I have a feeling it's going to become one. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I know that uh, I learned it from uh, Donnie Vomit of the Coney Island Circus Sideshow. Or, no, I'm sorry, uh, Sideshow by the Seashore. I don't know who taught it to him. Um, Probably his parents, Mr. and Mrs. Vomit. Yes. Uh, and actually, that, that was an event in and of itself when I learned how to do that. It was uh, uh, Melvin Burkhart's 100th birthday. I had flown up to Coney Island to, uh, to celebrate and, and go to the uh, ceremony and, you know, the mm-hmm. whole mass blockhead that was done and everything like that. And uh, I'd been Todd had Todd Robbins had introduced me to uh, to Donnie and a couple other um, local performers. And Donnie gave me the grand tour of the sideshow because I'd never been there. He said, "Hey, do you know this one?" And he picks up a mouse trap and hands it to me. Oh, well, yeah, you know, yeah, I've heard of it. I've never done it. He said, "All right, do it." So I, you know, I was finagled into doing it. And, you know, Fred Kyle, uh, the great Fredini, and Todd Robbins, and, and, and then Donnie, and I believe Dick Ziggin was in the room as well. But just a whole bunch of people were in there, egging me on to stick my tongue in a mousetrap. And I finally did it. And there's a photo online of me um, with the mousetrap on my tongue. I'm, I'm in awe. I mean, this, the shape of the story sounds like the first time I ate sushi, but... Yours is much cooler. <laughs> I'm a big sushi fan. I love sushi. Well, your story's way cooler. <laughs> and anything I've left out in that list? Um, yeah. Uh, let me let me see. I actually, you know, I can't spout off everything that I do off the top of my head. Well, what are your favorites? My favorites. Um, I'd have to say sword swallowing is my it, not my favorite thing to do, but it's the favorite that I have um, simply because I mean, 50 people can do it. I had no idea it was that few. Yeah, there's a there's a list online somewhere that Dan Meyer has compiled of all the uh, living working sword swallowers, and I believe the exact count is 47. Now, is there one or more of your skills that you keep polished up but don't get near enough opportunities to present? Well, I've, I've recently started swallowing and regurgitating cockroaches. Um, that's something that was taught to me by, by uh, Todd Robbins, who used to do that act um, and then retired it. And he, he has given it to me. But yeah, that's, that's one that you know, I'd love to have more opportunities to do because it's such a strong piece. You're telling me that you want to eat more cockroaches? No, I don't. I don't eat them. I I, sw- I, I will swallow one whole, and then uh, show my mouth empty, and then regurgitate it, bring it back. What do the cockroaches think of this? Oh, I, I'm sure they they're not too happy. Uh, you you got to put them on ice beforehand uh, to keep them keep them calm. But a uh, a list of of what I do. Um, Eating and breathing, fire, human blockhead, sword swallowing, insect eating, light bulb eating. I ingest molten wax. Um, I walk barefoot over broken bottles. 
I escape from straitjackets and ropes. I slam my hands into animal traps, pound soup cans on my fingers, put my tongue in a mouse trap, lie and recline on a bed of nails, uh, walk up a staircase of swords, uh, lift weights with my ears, do some magic, uh, juggling, and some uh, equilibristics. And you said on one or more of the forums that the mousetrap is one of those where there's no secret, you just got to be willing to take the hit. Exactly. Um, you know, a lot of people ask me, how, how do you do it? And, and all those things. And I just say, you, you got to be stupid enough to do it. You know, you got you to gotta be smart enough to know how to not be hurt. But you got to be dumb enough to actually do it. There are so many. Uh, I keep looking for things to add to my ebook about the uh, carnival and the sideshow, and I keep finding archival materials from the 30s, 40s, 50s, <laughs> with all kinds of wild descriptions and completely inaccurate about secrets of walking on fire and and other oh, yeah. sideshow stunts, and they'll get you killed. Oh yeah, yeah, it will. Um, Swami Mantra is hilarious which is a popular book for people that want to learn sideshow but don't know how to go about it the right way. There are instructions in there on how to eat glass, and the man that wrote those instructions had never eaten glass. Okay. You know. Uh, <laughs> uh, his name is Sam Dowell. Uh, he also came up with the Swami gimmick. Where have you been performing mostly? Well, I, I do a lot of clubs, you know, bars, music venues, galleries, how much do you travel for that? Um, not much. Luckily, you know, living in Charlotte, North Carolina, there's a lot going on. And right now, I am in West Virginia visiting, uh, visiting some grandparents. And I'm closer to uh, Wilkes-Barre, where, where the Sideshow Gathering is going to be um, for right now. But, uh, you know, I've, I've pretty much exhausted the club market here in Charleston, West Virginia. There's, you know, about five bars, and I've... I've played them all twice within two weeks. <laughs> so, so you don't find a great deal of difficulty calling up a venue and saying, hey, want an act? No, I'm, I'm very good cold calling people and, and talking to people on the telephone and in person is extremely easy for me. Now back home in Charlotte, uh, is there a lot of replay value to this? You think you could stay by and large on the circuit you've developed? Oh, yeah, uh, I have a, uh, or I had, before I left for the World of Wonders, um, a, uh, a weekly stage show in the, in the back of a uh, small vintage store um, in downtown Charlotte in the Arts District. Can you make a living at it? I am so far. I mean, I, I've only got two bills to pay. You traveled this summer. I did. Um, not for very long. I traveled for three weeks. Um, I was in New Jersey with the World of Wonders and Palace of Illusions combined circus sideshow. It's a, a wonderful little project owned by Ward, Ward Hall and Chris M. Christ. And uh, it was hell. <laughs> it's supposed to be, I think. but uh... Yeah, I, and I mean that in, in the best possible sense. I got there... And was greeted by Chris. You know, he he took me over to the tent. Um, everybody was already there, even though I was, you know, I was, I was, I got there when they told me to get there, but everybody else was already there, and so it automatically 
singled me out to the rest of the cast as, oh, who does he think he is? Because they were all doing manual labor. The tent, the the, bit, the top was already set up. So I, I start working, and Jimmy Long, who I've I've written about in my blog, had me pound steaks. And I am 5'10", 5'11". I weigh 125 pounds. I'm not muscular. The steaks weigh more than you. The steaks weigh more than me, yes. The sledgehammer weighed more than me. And, it, you know, it just doing that was so difficult and so tiresome. And I'm a wimp. I really am. And you, usually I would give up. I would say, you know what, screw that. Let somebody else that can actually do it do it. But no, no, I was, I was at, on the lot. I was in the carnival. And that, that first day, I actually busted my head open. And, uh, Ow. Yeah, I, had, um, I was behind the semi-trailer. And I, I had bent down because Jimmy Long had told me to pick up a nut that was on the, on the ground. And I, you know, I, I, I like to think that it was an accident that the, uh, the back door of the trailer was opened and positioned right above my head. Oh, jeez. As I got up. And my head smashed into the bottom of the door, and I, I was bleeding all over the place. And uh, you know, and was given given a glass of water, and Edward uh, bandaged my 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 head up. I, I did that for three weeks, and I had had enough. I took one shower in those three weeks, and that shower was in the rain. And I'm a I'm a very hygienic person. I don't like being dirty. I don't like being sweaty. And and I was dirty and sweaty. It was it was it was awful. Well, I have to ask, especially in the light of uh, all the comments people threw at you, mm-hmm. I have to ask two things. Number one is, did you not expect that sort of thing? I did, and that was the thing. You know, I tried to expect the worst, and what I got was worse than what I could have expected. And did you did you not expect a severe amount of of testing the new guy and uh, giving the new guy hell from the people that had been doing this for length of days? Well, see, yeah, you know, I didn't I didn't really anticipate that because um, the entire cast was green. You know, the uh, the inside lecturer, the MC, and his wife had been there for two years. Um, they had brought a friend that was brand new. They actually brought two friends that were brand new. Um, Mike Vitka, who was talking the outside of the show, he was brand new. It, it was just, you know, I, I didn't expect that uh, these people would, say, you know, automatically treat me like dirt. And that's, that's what happened. But, I mean, later on it got much better. And, I mean, I, you know, I would, I would not trade that experience for the world. I really wouldn't. If I had the opportunity to go back, I would. Think you'd make it for longer than three weeks, or would you want to? Um, I think I could. I think because now I know what to expect. I think it was just too much of a shock to my system to be able to handle it. Uh, because, I mean, I was, I was bred in rent fairs and theaters and, and clubs. Mm. It's, it's incredibly difficult, but, you know, now that I know what to expect, I could do it. Um, you know, I'm I'm used to being in front of an audience that's receptive, that you know wants to see what I'm doing, 
that will clap and laugh at jokes, things like that. And when you're in a real sideshow, that doesn't happen. They just stare open-mouthed or that, walk away or jeer? That, you know, and a lot of times they boo. Did um, did you leave on good terms? I did leave on good terms. You know, I, I left Ward and Chris with handshakes, and, uh, you know, they they gave me an open invitation. Anytime I wanted to come back, I could. Which brings us to the Yahoo Sideshow World Board. <laughs> you caught hell. I did. I, I I caught two two strains in the messages, the postings there, and one was this young guy. Who the heck does he think he is? Mm-hmm. And the other one, uh, boy, he's talking bad about Ward. Right. The, the latter seems to have you seem to have clarified things. So. Yeah, I have no intentions to to talk negatively about Ward, about Chris, about Jimmy, about Pete. None of them, you know. I, I love them all dearly. Uh, they are, they're all, all four of them are heroes of mine. And they always will be. What about the who the hell is this young guy? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I never, I never posted on the, uh, on the Yahoo group. And most of the people that do post are, you know, people that are out there with their shows. And I just never really meshed too much with them. I've always spoken, you know, I've, I've got a telephone relationship with Bobby Reynolds, and I had, I had known Ward for three or four years before I worked for him over the telephone. So I, I had contacts and and uh, and friends in that end, but you know I never really talked to the, the majority of them. Uh, I sought out who I thought to be the end all to be all, which would naturally be Bobby Reynolds and Ward Hall. And I didn't really take it any further, um, which I probably should have right off the bat, which, you know, that's a mistake on my part. Now, there was something on the, uh, I believe it was the Magic Cafe, uh, about posting a beginning of your story and uh, stopping before you got to the end. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the, the saga of the sideshow. Um, I thought that I was going to write go on the uh, the cafe and, and write my story. It turned out to be a, a uh, cliffhanger of sorts because I had not pre-written it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just writing stuff and posting. And I was like, okay, that's not very much, so I'm just, I'm just going to you know, add this and say, all right, well, more later. I ended up getting really lazy, and I became much less bitter about my experience. And I, I opened my eyes and thought, you know, wow, this was this was really important for me. And uh, when I started writing, I was still not only angry with myself, but angry at the, at the show. You know, I knew that it doesn't doesn't pay well. The hours are long and grueling, and the audiences are crap. I knew that, but it just, I don't know, I didn't register. Well, I guess you have to have seen it for yourself. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I did, and it, and it just took a while for me to appreciate it, you know. A very, very humbling experience. Who are you when you're performing? Who am I when I'm performing? Uh, I, I like to think that I'm me. It, that, that's a re- I've been asked that question many times, and it's really hard for me to answer just because, you know, it's I try not to think about it. Um, you know, I walk on stage and I do what I do. 
because I mean, there's such a crossover in my my actual. I, I'm I'm a bit of a show off, <laughs> um, as as most of of us sideshow performers are. You know, I'll, if I'm in a restaurant, I'll stick a spoon up my nose or <laughs> or what have you. Um, Has that ever gotten me in trouble? Oh no, no. I've and I've talked to waitresses and waiters um, with with silverware up my nose, you know, or. <laughs> Swallowing a butter knife or doing, you know, whatever. Um, I collect things. What do you collect? Um, oddities and curiosities of all kinds. The kind of thing that belongs in a sideshow? The kind of things that belong in a sideshow or a dime museum, yeah. Um, you know, and I, I really started getting feverish about it when the uh, dime museum closed in February. The three. Did you buy any of their stuff? Well, the three things that I bid on... Uh, wonderful, the, the the wonderful Mr. David Copperfield bid on the exact three items. The, the, of, of course, I did not get those things. Obviously, I, I don't have, my, my pockets aren't quite as deep as David's. So, you know, I said, well, one of the things that I bid on was the world's largest ball of neckties. I said, well, you know, I've seen the thing in person. It's not that big. I'll make my own. And I did, and it's like twice the size of that one. And I've got, I've got tons of gaffs. You got any of Higley's zibits? I do, I do. What Doug you got? Higley is like a father to me. Doug and I talk just about eh, probably three times a week. But yeah, I do. I do have a a Higley zibit. My uh, my Higley Wiggly. <laughs> do you feel like, uh, uh, from what you've seen uh, uh, on the lot, that you could take that out on the road? Um, not on a real, like, not on a big fair, you know, not a, not a big midway or anything like that. Um, flea markets I've done, um, and especially here in West Virginia, the caliber of folks in, in this part of the, uh, the country eat that up. What did you bill it as? Oh, the strange thing. I, I followed Doug's plan and it does well. It's, you know, it's, it's paid for itself. Well, what do you see as your, your future from the point where you stand now? My ultimate goal is to become successful in this and be able to uh, make a good living. And I think I'm perfectly capable of that. Um, something that I also envision myself as is an actual face for the the, the new sideshow. You know, I... I could be the public face that's on it, right? Or one right. one of the major ones, right? Um, and why not? Why not? Exactly. Todd Robbins has joked with me that uh, I could be on the cover of uh, Teen Beat magazine with a nail up my nose. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, who's Brett hammering nails up his nose for this week? Oh my God! Yeah, see, it's it, it could happen, and wouldn't that be a beautiful thing for the sideshow? Well, clearly you're on your way up. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I hope. I hope so. Um, I should think so. Yeah. Well, you know, if you decide to you know, become a gynecologist or something, uh, uh, so be it. But if you, <laughs> but I think you've made enough of a name for yourself in the in the business and in the field already that people will be looking to you and saying, "I remember him when." The preceding program was transcribed. We pause now for station identification.
The Pink Lemonade Menagerie from Austin, Texas, is a group of local oddballs, a three-legged dog, and an ever-changing band of guest performers who do their best to leave you dazzled and bewildered. But it can be debated whether this was the very best time to introduce a new sideshow group, especially given that at the moment there's no opportunity to perform, and they're mostly against a blank apartment wall introductory videos don't show them off to very good advantage. My suggestion? Guys and gals, make your statement, and as soon as you can get in front of live audiences, delete every one of those videos and refilm them. That way you'll make the impression you deserve. Performing artists who are isolated now and are making zero dollars and zero zero cents, it is only recently that we've come to discriminate fully between full-time jobs with benefits and an income stream and the gig economy. At the moment, for both, you have to go somewhere, but entertainment is rooted in audience presence. Comedy would be popular virtually. Sideshow would lend itself to virtual performance especially well. You could teach on YouTube. You could do a show on Twitch with Venmo donations or stream your show on YouTube and be sure to stretch it out long enough to allow time for Super Chat donations. True, YouTube does take an unconscionable percentage of the Super Chat money. It's not going to pay the bills, but it's a help to get through this. Of course, you'll have to do your publicity and reach out to your existing fan base, enlist them to tell their friends. If that all sounds depressing, at the end of the day, it's better to have tried. And let me add that there are many more excellent shows out there to keep us entertained, online and off, while the virus picks us off one by one. I always like to end on a positive note, so here is a rousing, uplifting song which is guaranteed to cheer you up. When you attend a funeral, it is sad to think that sooner or later those you love will do the same for you. And you may have thought it tragic not to mention other adjectives to think of all the weeping they will do. But don't you worry, no more ashes, no more sackcloth, and an armband made of black cloth will someday never more adorn a sleeve. For if the bomb that drops on you gets your friends and neighbors too, there'll be nobody left behind to grieve, and we will all go together when we go. What a comforting fact that is to know Universal bereavement and inspiring achievement Yes, we all will go together when we go We will all go together when we go All suffused with an incandescent glow No one will have the endurance To collect on his insurance Lloyds of London will be loaded when they go we will all fry together when we fry. We'll be French fried potatoes by and by. 
There will be no more misery when the world is our rotisserie. Yes, we all will fry together when we fry. We will all bake together when we bake. There'll be nobody present at the wake. With complete participation in that grand incineration, nearly three billion hunks of well-done steak. We will all char together when we char. And let there be no moaning of the bar. Just sing out a tedium when you see that ICBM, and the party will be come as you are. We will all burn together when we burn. There'll be no need to stand and wait your turn when it's time for the fallout and Saint Peter calls us all out. We'll just drop our agendas and adjourn. We will all go together when we go. Every hot and tot and every Eskimo. When the air becomes uranius, we will all go simultaneous. Yes, we all will go together when we all go together. Yes, we all will go together when we go. The feature interview is a wonderful conversation held in October 2007 with James Taylor. A familiar figure, a writer, a historian, and a facilitator. I think his greatest contribution is the way he acts as a catalyst. He brings people together and enables a lot of things to happen that might not otherwise have happened. That doesn't make the headlines, but it does a lot to inject new vitality into the whole new sideshow scene. It's a long interview. The guy just won't shut up. But when you hear what he has to say, I'm sure you'll hang on every word. In the interest of full disclosure, I got started on my On the Midway ebook uh-huh. with a huge carny lingo list, appropriated because it was everywhere on the web. Uh, yeah. And I figure <laughs> if it's everywhere, then it's probably nobody. And yeah. you emailed me going, wait a minute, that's mine. And you were kind enough to let me use it. Oh, and well, no, I, I've tweaked it to I my was say. taste. Yours is in even more places all over the web, and, and mine is showing up in a few. If I've, if I've come across as generous, well, may I wave? But, um, but, but my line is, is that, you know, if it's out there and people credit you and they link back and what the hell, you, you know, I mean, that's just kind of the essence of, of all of it anyway. As long as somebody's honestly trying to, to, to help inform uh, you know the the public at large, if you will, about the value of variety entertainment. How to hell with it, you know. I mean, it's it's you know just just you know link the living hell out of everything, and that's going to be more than good enough. It, it, it's such a funny business anyway. I, I mean, it's it's a business that's that's always been based on kind of the magician stock and trade of, of misdirection and uh, you know the more noise you make the less kind of attention people are paying to the thing that's going on sort of just under the table or behind the curtain or wherever. I love all that over the top in every way kind of presentation. And It's true but, and I, I can't picture another entertainment where the more people that come out of a tent going, ew yep, the more yep. people you're going to get going in. How'd you start shocked enough? Oh lord. My father died in 1988, and within a year or two after a proper period of mourning, my mother took up with an old carny, a guy by the name of Jerry Farrow, and, and I, I thought he was the most hysterical human being I'd ever met in my life. Um, I, I asked him one day, I was like, Jerry, um, 
so where are the books on this stuff? And, um, I, you know, he was like, well, there ain't none. I was like, what do you mean there ain't none? There's books on everything. And he goes, no, I know the kind of book you want. And that book ain't out there. But you're a writer. Write your own damn book. There you go. And it kind of had never occurred to me that that was something I could kind of do. And Jerry was like, look, you know, if you're worried about, you know, approaching people, he's like, you know, you're going to talk to them. And within seconds, they're going to know you're legit. Don't worry about it. And he was 100% right. I pretty much started doing the interviews stone cold uh, the very, very beginning of, actually it was the, the very end of 1992, and had had no circus or carnival background to any extent other than G being kind of a fan the way a lot of people are. And I started interviewing the old timers, started interviewing people cold and pretty quickly realized that I was going to watch a lot of old people die. And over the course of the intervening push in two decades, that's exactly what I've been doing is watching old timers die and, uh, and actually watching the rebirth of the business in a different form, care of you know, the new sideshow and the new vaudeville and the new burlesque, which has been an amazing experience. Of course, I've also watched myself kind of become, by some people's estimations, this expert that I still can't kind of figure out how I've become if I am. But it very quickly turned into the book that my New York publisher kind of didn't want me to write because I wanted to do it as straight interviews. And they were like, eh, it's kind of boring. Uh, you write better than that. Why don't you just sort of tell their stories for them? I went through about nine months of writer's block because I'd made all these promises to show people that I was not going to do what every other writer on them had ever done, which is rewrite their stories. I was going to have them say what it was they wanted to say. You know, I mean, a lot of people have interviewed, you know, especially the old timers. Oh, what's it like being a giant? You know, it's like, I don't give a crap what it's like being a giant. I want to know, how is it that you do this every day? You know, how do you get ready to go out there you know what what really got you into the business what is it that makes a guy decide gee i think i'm going to be on a sideshow now instead of you know doing the other job and um i you know kind of talking to him about how it is that the business gets run day to day i was teaching a class a buddy of mine asked me to come in and talk about how to write for for publishing where the where the result would be that you'd create a magazine I realize I'm giving myself the assignment, and the assignment I'm giving myself is, oh, screw my New York publisher, I'm going to do this myself, and I'm going to do it as a journal. So in effect, I took this project that I'd grown to love, that I thought was a book, and I turned it into a journal that I published out of my own publishing house. And that's where Shocked and Amazed came from. And in fact, in that class, uh, I met three different people, one of whom was Kathleen Kotcher, who has been my, at first was, was just my director of production, and now she's, you know, one of the three people who publish Shocked and Amazed, and she's been with me ever since. If somebody's sitting there saying, i got to get a copy of this. Uh, all they have to do is go to shockedandamazed.com. I've seen some hostility in the Yahoo Sideshow group. Mm-hmm. Well, hell, I see hostility daily in the guys. <laughs> I was going to say, my God, man, where do you not see hostility? They tend to look down on those historians, you by name and others. Are the people actually in trailers out on the lot, George Lucas and people like uh, you and I are the Star Wars nerds? 
We know exactly what compound Han Solo was frozen in, but we couldn't actually produce a movie to save our souls. <laughs> well, I, well I, I, I'm in kind of a weird world with that, too, because I, I, I've never been one of those, gee, how many nuts were there on the, the wagon wheels in the first Ringling Brothers show? I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know that stuff. I, I make no claim to being one of these guys who knows all the names and all the dates. I just never had a massive interest in those things. I'm not a sword swallower. I'm not a fire breather. I'm not a, you know, people are always expecting me to get up there and say, oh, do an opening like, you know, like the, like the old guys used to, I, I have to make it up off the top of my damn head like anybody, or steal it all whole cloth from somebody. I can't. Yeah. If, if there are those out there who are slagging um, you know, me or anybody else who's into the history, there are people who are PO'd that guys like, say, Joe Nickel with his side show book. Oh, he's like telling people how this stuff is done. Well, first off, there ain't no huge mystery as to, as to how almost any of the sideshow stuff is done. It, it's, it's, it's fairly simple. All you have to do is watch it, and you see how it's done. It's, it's not stage magic. It's not, I mean, 99% of the sideshow stunts, you're watching it. So the because secret of most sideshow stunts is that there is no secret. You just do it. Yeah, I mean, it, there there are secrets to, I shouldn't say secrets, but I mean, there there are methods to how you do these things so that you don't die. And if you are very, very, very careful in watching them, you can pick up some of those things. But that doesn't mean that somehow you've, you've anybody who goes to a sideshow and thinks that as a result of watching that act, oh, I've seen that done, I, I, that's no big deal, they're really stupid. Um, because that's really not the point. I went to a sideshow year. It was a Ward Hall show uh, years and years and years back, and uh, went with a huge mob of people. And Ward, you know, Ward let us all into the show. And there, there was this one guy who was really into the business, and his wife was a complete asshole. And we go through the whole show, and I mean, Ward had every one of his people really do it up. You know, he really wanted to make sure that everybody who'd come in with James Taylor really got a show. And I mean, he even had Bruce Snowden, you know, big Bruce. He even had him getting up there shaking his belly around and stuff. I mean, Bruce never got out of that chair 99% of the rest of the time he did a show unless he got big money. And I mean, really a great show. And as we're, we're finishing all up, we were in there cutting it up with Ward and having a gay old time for, oh, I got an hour or so. Walk out of the show. She is pissing and moaning about what a skanky show she'd just seen. And I looked at her and I was like, did you pay to get into that show? Go up here on the midway and ask anybody else to let you do anything for nothing, including get into this goddamn carnival. And I went to slap her. I thought, how, how rude and ignorant of the reality of any, any form of entertainment can you possibly be? If you didn't like the show, fine. You got comped in, shut up, and never go to another sideshow. If you didn't have a gay old time, fine. Keep it to yourself. If you paid big money, you got every right, to work, right in the world to scream and holler. You know, a lot of people don't realize that 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 the essence of sideshow, the essence of a lot of variety at its most beloved, is the difference between high and low art. And there was a time when high and low art were themselves ridiculous terms because 
you know, I mean, the, the idea that, that a baker or a bricklayer could be not an artist, that's something that's post-Renaissance as, as, as an idea. And the fact that there's a high and low art, which, which people are supposed to appreciate in different ways, is, is all things considered historically a fairly recent concept. And if, if you really think about it, the number of great painters and playwrights who have just been fascinated by, who have had that love of the dirt. It's always tickled me that are here in D.C. that are our great and revered and worshipful Smithsonian uh, Institution of Learning and Education yeah. is not only owes its origins, but is only a couple of steps from Barnum's Museum. Yep. And that only a couple of steps from Sideshow. Yep. Oh, yeah. Now, oh, can yeah. you comment on this, though? And and I almost wanted to get to it earlier when you talked about uh, uh-huh. uh, uh, carnies being suspect. Uh, I believe it was Jim Rose had something online where he pointed that uh, there was a period where it seemed that everybody in the outdoor show business was taking pride in... Uh, screwing the marks, giving as little as possible, and uh, uh, really just delivering disappointment. And that did not redound to their benefit. Jim and I agree to disagree on that point. Um, I think that, that in terms of, for example, the games... Those guys were selling entertainment. They weren't, you know, they weren't selling you a chance to win anything. Generally, well, that's um, seriously wrong-headed. If you want to have a good time, play a carnival game. If you yep. want to go home with a, a lot of valuable prizes, go to the store. Yeah, go to the store. And the, the thing is, is that I, I think that there have always been, as as Jim does acknowledge, you know, honestly and accurately. I mean, there have been, you know, the racket shows and all the rest of that stuff where the the deal was to to, to you know to burn up the lot as much as possible, to burn that spot completely. But I think that, you know, most carnival people have, I mean, any of them that I've ever met, I mean, they never thought that what you were supposed to walk away with was feeling disappointed because they knew what that was going to get them. That was going to get them beef. That was going to get them grief. That was going to have everybody get all pissed off. And, and the more ranged up people get in the old days, I mean, as, as any number of show guys have told me, you know, they get a damn hay roofs and it, people got killed. I mean, you didn't want to have any more of that happen than possible. And above and beyond that, you know, most people who got into the show business had an idea that they were going to give you some degree of show, whether it called itself a game or a ride or really the shows. And in in terms of, I mean, I, I know that Jim talks about, well, gee, you know, it was all about invented freaks, and it was, you know, and it lost sight of the fact that the real business was was the, you know, the hardcore human marvels, and it, it's it's kind of a it's it's kind of a not very accurate view of the business to me, because the business has always been whatever showmen thought they could present the public that would simultaneously make the show guy a buck and have everybody leave happy that they had seen a good attraction. That's what it really boils down to. It, it's, it's a fairly straightforward formula of, I'm going to entertain you, and in the process, you're going to pay me for having had to do the work of entertaining you. And that goes back to the dawn of the species, that recognition that, wait a minute, this made that guy laugh. 
I could make a buck off of this. And I don't think there's anything sleazy or bad about that. And if, it, if what it's about is giving the public as little as possible in exchange for taking their money, what you very quickly realize is you better hit the road tomorrow if you've done that. Because otherwise, you're dead. Um, even when you think about the notion of, of, of you know, what people believe about Barnum, you know, the, the two principal things both being wrong. The first, that he invented the circus, which he did not do. And the second of which, that he said, there's a sucker born every minute, which he never said. Right. Um, you know, the, the core of Barnum was always, people don't mind being fooled if you let them in on the joke. Above and beyond, of course, giving them so much, you know, to, to be entertained by in the process of periodically being confronted with the wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know, this way to the egress, the Fiji mermaid pitched as though it was this beautiful woman, and you get in there and it's this desiccated, shrivel up, mummified little monkey. I, I mean, nobody went in there feeling pissed off that they had suspected there was a beautiful woman and instead got shown this shrivel-up little thing. I don't think I've ever seen anybody saying, man, I got ripped off. They might not have been very happy because they thought it wasn't a real ex-living thing, but that was the essence of the debate. And that was what got people curious enough to go and make their own decisions. Well, I, I may not be seeing a, a lovely mermaid, but goddamn, look at that thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, without a doubt, um, and, and you know, and, and you know, it, 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 inarguably, Barnum, as much as invented modern advertising, you, you know, the but but at oh, least yeah. Barnum, and that's that's the joy of the business to me. People are always like, oh man, what a ripoff! I paid a buck and went in there, and I thought I was going to see this. You know, this thing was an illusion. Well, if you paid attention to the banners you'd realize that's what it was going to be. When you get inside, if the people are doing the show the way they should do it, which, you know, most of them try to do, they try to make the fact that they know it's an illusion and you know it's an illusion still be entertaining in spite of the fact that maybe for a nanosecond you were going to say a woman with a snake's body but this human head. I mean, come on. Did you ever go to science class? You're not going to see that for real. On the other hand, uh, I'll give you two examples. Mm -hmm. I saw a video... Uh, by Bobby Reynolds, featuring the electric chair. And the man's a legend, and, and reading some of his uh, valleys, uh, they're terribly compelling. Oh, yeah. But I it, was very it, disappointed. And so, second, you hear about the legend of the Girl to Gorilla show. Mm -hmm. I've seen three in my life, and mm -hmm. they've all been miserable failures. Uh, the audience walks out thinking, what was that supposed to be? I don't get it. Why? I've seen versions of it that were just horrible. On the other hand, the very first time I went to see Zahara, which was Phil's show, um, a honest-to-God girl-to-gorilla show, it was a lot of kids and some teenagers and a few adults. That damn gorilla came roaring out of a cage, man. Those kids were screaming and running out of the show, and the teenagers were jumping. And, and of course, by the, very quickly, they were, they were laughing, too. The adults were mostly like, can you believe that? And the illusion was... Not seamless, but decent enough. And I'd argue that, you know, 
that's accomplishing what that show is meant to accomplish. Maybe it ain't supposed to be David Copperfield. It, it, it just, it ain't. Sideshow's always prided itself on the, the less public honesty, the better. But the, the, the problem is, is that, that that's kind of simultaneously wonderful and endearing. It's destructive historically because it just makes it almost impossible to get to the core of things. It, it just, it becomes impossible to find out about the people and, and what it is that, that you know, got them into the business or, or how they worked inside the business. And unless you talk to people who actually knew them, it gets really tough. If, if, for example, um, the, the one that just makes me crazy is Serpentina because it, it's just it, it's unbelievable the number of people who purport to be making a stab at, at the truth of the history of things in a lot of very recent books, too, um, that, that, again, purport to be, oh, we're trying to get to the, to the core of this. And eh, no, you're not. I mean, you, you're trying to put a book out and have the book make money, and that's great. Anything anybody says that's colorful gets accepted as the truth. And yeah, and, I'm, and, hey, and, I, and I love all that BS. I mean, I love that stuff. Let me ask you this. Can a born freak... Human yes. oddity performed today. Yes. In fact, they can. Um, and in fact, a lot more of them are coming into the business. But, but there's a caveat to that, which is so the business of old, of, of freak exhibition, was, was kind of never what people think it was. You'd probably have to be in your 40s or up nowadays to have gone to a carnival and seen a real hardcore freak attraction. You know, we all think that all these sideshows and days of old were like Ward Halls when, when Ward prided himself on having half a dozen or more born freaks on a show or, or you'd go to the Ringling Brothers show in the old days and see, you know, like every born freak you could ever imagine out there. And most of these shows did not have all that many freaks. They couldn't afford to pay them. Um, those guys demanded huge money and got it, you know, co you know, comparatively, and very often they owned their own shows. You found this huge gulf in my generation, the boomers, where they just weren't getting into the business. And what the old timers like Ward and Chris slowly had to face was the fact that it was almost impossible for them to get talent. And the people who were getting into the business were finding a very weird market because they almost had to invent the market that they were entering because there was just almost none of it left on the carnival midways. I wonder if it's a factor, uh, any of it, that the what we would used to call uh, a freak uh, is now a handicapped person that integrates into society with a few accommodations. Back in the 70s, I had a few dates with uh, a young lady who had the same limb reduction disorder that Grady Stiles had. Oh, there you go. And... Uh, we didn't continue it mostly because she was way, way out of my class. She was an attorney, and I'm just a slug. <laughs> she wouldn't have any problems. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The the thing you're finding nowadays, though, is, and I don't know whether this is a, this is a function of all the goth stuff. I don't know whether it's a function of Burning Man. But what you're finding is is that as perhaps a byproduct of all of those things, and the whole sort of gee, let's get tattooed up the wazoo and pierced every place it's humanly possible to be pierced, you're finding a lot more, you know, born freaks, a lot more people who were born different getting into the business. Um, you're finding a lot more people of difference going into the business 
I mean, it's it's not like you know this sort of world is crawling with them, you know, ready to no. jump into the business to to kind of do something on stage. But you're finding just more of these people entering the business, and you know, long may they wave. Um, oh, sure. uh, in, in London, um, Matt Frazier. Who bills himself? Um, you know when he's doing that act, uh, Seal Boy Freak. He's written a, uh, a whole stage show around the notion of having been born a thalidomide baby. You know, basically his arms like these tiny, shriveled up little things about the size of a doll baby's. And um, Matt's probably one of the most erudite people on planet Earth to talk to about the business and about you know what it means to be different, but but the power that you have on stage being different. Matt came here to the U.S. Uh, some years back to do a documentary, uh, which was called Seal Boy Freak, as a matter of fact, and uh, aired on uh, Channel 4 in London. And his idea was to trace the origins of, you know, in quotes, his act. And basically what he was looking for is he was looking for the origins of Celo's act. And he found it because he found people who worked with and knew CeeLo. And he then proceeded on the stage at Sideshows by the Seashore to recreate CeeLo's act. The minute he started doing that, and you know the show went over very well in London, he ended up doing it as a kind of a stage show as well. Um, and he's done a lot of stuff that, that play off the fact, that, that, that things that play off the fact that he is different. And he knows you're going to want to look. And that's okay. He just doesn't want to be disparaged because of what he looks like, or 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 made fun of because of what he looks. But the fascination, he's like, hey, how can how can you not acknowledge the fact that people are fascinated in you because you're different? What's what's the problem? Of course they are. Uh, you, you know, um, Jeannie Tamani, uh, the world's only living half girl, as uh, she was billed. You know, her, her line to me um, when uh, I asked her and her daughter Judy Rock. Um, uh, about what they like to do, I, you know, Jeannie's line to me was they used to like to go to the mall and look at people. <laughs> I was like, this is a great line out of one of the one of the premier born freaks of the twentieth century. You know, I like to go to the mall and watch people. <laughs> it's oh, like, yeah, yeah, well, hey, it's human. What are we going to do? Yeah, now, let's get to the show bar. Oh yeah. Well, you oh you mean the Palace of Wonders. Yes. Yes, indeed. After years and years and years of doing Shocked and Amazed, I I met up with a gentleman by the name of Dick Horn. Dick and I were were fairly like-minded regarding some aspects of the business, at least to the extent that both of us wanted to make a museum. Where you get this stuff, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, people are like, "Where do you collect all this stuff?" It's amazing the number of things you can find just roaming around through antique stores, through, how you can find stuff in Asian markets. I mean, anything that's going to look a little bit bizarre, a little bit exotic, the, you know, the strange, the bizarre, the weird, the odd, the unusual, as long as it can be put out there in a format that people are not used to seeing, they're going to be shocked and amazed. It's what's going to happen. Uh, I, I was in an Asian market a couple of months ago, and there in the meat cat, the meat counter, they had bull dicks laying out there on the meat counter. And I, I saw there thinking, that myself you know, the same day I saw canned iguana. There you go. It's like, there's an attraction. Man, I bought one of those as fast as I possibly could, brought that sucker home, stuck it in formaldehyde. I'm like, I ain't losing this. And, I, you know, you put that kind of thing on display, and you label it properly, and you make it seem special enough. And, man, you could 
you could troop people through there who buy those things at Asian markets, and they're going to suddenly be amazed that they're seeing it in the museum. But you can still put this on display and attract people, even in this day of oh, yeah. television. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. People, it, you know, the, the, the question I'm always asking is, well, are people too sophisticated now for this? Hell no! They'll never be too sophisticated! Because what we are is very curious monkeys. I mean, we'll stare at train wrecks. We'll go to, we'll chase fire engines. I mean, we don't care. I mean, it, you know, Barham's take on it was, it was never the thing. It was always the story that went with the thing because the thing itself is just a hunk of crap I, you know it could be any old dancing you know a rusty old car sitting out in some guy's barn is nothing until you say that oh gee Bonnie and Clyde were shot to death in that you, you know uh, I have a little piece of glass in the middle of which you know like a microscope it's a microscope slide in the middle of which looks like a little blood red thumbprint that's what it looks like <clears throat> and it's nothing until you pay attention to, in magic marker on the, on the slide, the name Gitto. And really? then there's the rest of the story. What that thing is, is a brain smear, literally from the autopsy, of Charles Gitto, the assassin of Garfield, President Garfield. It's just some little hunk of crap, big as a finger, and that's about it. They need to know the stories, and that's really what Sideshow has always been about, is, is the story, you know, and now the rest of the story, because it's the story that makes it exotic. I, I have a, a, a ballet to get the people into the blow-off. Now, your, your basic deformed baby in a jar, but uh, uh, the story about mm -hmm. being in your trailer when the show's closed during a rainstorm and a woman comes knocking yep. at the door that you know that one yep oh yeah and how could you not go see it after you that bet. and out of that in 1999 came the american dime museum which uh was that place was a damn license to make media i mean it we got so much attention in that space I just it was unbelievable certainly a success at the promotional level it was a success at the visibility level it was never a success at the monetary level mm -hmm. we used to have days at the american dime museum where we couldn't believe how many people showed up i mean it'd be like you know like a hundred people would show up over the course of a day and you'd have days where literally my partner would sit there and no one would come in and I worked with him from uh, on the museum uh, he and I had created. I, I worked with him on that till 2003, and then he and I parted ways. He continued on for a number of years, and of course, it, it, it was everything that was his end of the business was sold off at auction in February of um, 07. Uh, I had taken my half of the business out in 03. A lot of it was in storage for. Oh, minutes, <laughs> uh, as much as, because in the very beginning of 04, as a result of a conversation that Kathleen Kotcher had had, she was talking to him about a proposed project that he had to reinvent H Street Northeast, just off Capitol Hill. And the plan was to buy up uh, half a dozen or more uh, basically bombed out buildings and turn them into clubs, because H Street Northeast, although it still has a ways to go, is very much in probably the next three, four years going to be what U Street invented it, reinvented itself to be, what Georgetown years ago reinvented itself to be. Yeah. The plus to H Street and that whole area northeast is that it's probably going to stay edgy and wacky and a little goofy. I and didn't look at a map until 
today, uh-huh. um, and I was really shocked to find out. Really, you're you're quite near my old haunts because oh, I you're kidding. Get, well, I used to get uh, all kinds of, of food up at the wholesalers up there next to Gallaudet University when I was younger and stupider. Uh, I used to hang out at a uh, biker disco on Fifth Street, and and it it fills the same place in my heart. Wishing I was on the carnival lot. Uh, I, I used to think how cool it was uh, because I got my butt up to a scary area at 6 a.m. because they close at 6.30. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And I was uh, and I didn't mind stepping over piles of chicken guts in the gutter to do it. Uh, yep. Oh, yeah. Lucky to be alive. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Kathleen, what she proposed was a club that would be based around the concept of an old dime museum, which is basically what I had always wanted the American Dime Museum to be anyway, which would be a museum with performance space, because that's what the dime museums were. What keeps it going and makes it vital is, as much as anything, the fact that you can sell beer. Yeah, there you go. You know so, that I was doing background on this today. I uh-huh. googled Palace of Wonders, and now not exclusively. There are three you or four. Dominate ten full pages of the first results. Oh, you're kidding! Of just hours? No, no. There's there's a few scattered in there. There's a place in Budapest. Yes, yes. But uh, but but about eighty percent of the results in the first ten pages yeah. are uh, either reviews, newspaper articles. There's a a bunch of YouTube videos. Yeah. A person walking down the street without a predisposition to becoming to your place could look at it, even understand it, and uh, from the outside and think, well, this is just a novelty bar, a one-trick pony. Mm. But I took a look at your October schedule, which oh, yeah. is where we are right now, October 2007. Yep. And it's varied. It shows something new about every one of the genres. It's yep. sexy and smart. Yep. Uh, I see female arm wrestling, and yep. if you back the winner, she picks up your bar tab. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see uh, <laughs> a first show by students of Kitty Victorian's Burlesque University. Yep. Uh, a, a variety evening, everything from fire dancing to trick roping. Mm-hmm. And uh, a regular bring your sketchbook and sketch a, a, a scantily clad model. Oh, yeah, Dr. Sketchy. I, I, that was always the idea to 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 spread it around to to capitalize on as many markets as possible. But I'm uh, under the impression that every almost everything I see on your schedule is very audience involving in some way. You're not going to sit there and gaze at something. Yep. You're going to yep. bet on the female arm wrestler, or you're going to sketch the model. There's a game show called Go to Hell. Oh yeah. Uh, there's a New Orleans jazz sit in with the band night if you want to. Yep. And I, I, I'm I'm about as happy as it's humanly possible to be to um, to be connected with it. You know, above and beyond the fact that it got all that crap of mine out of storage. <laughs> that too. Well, I see that the you know it comes across that you're happy. And I look at the videos on YouTube, and I see a happy audience. Oh yeah! Oh, the audience loves the joint. Believe me. And you got a you got a, a venue that holds what a maybe maybe a hundred folks. Yeah, um, and we've we've already we've already packed in a hundred and a half in there. But you, you start you start breaching a hundred, and man, it gets really tight. And we have we have, on the second floor there there you know people can sit around at tables. First floor, except at the bar, it's mostly stand up. Big TVs, first and second floor for people who can't get close enough to the stage. Stage is a is a is built up about I guess it's about a foot and a half, so it puts people up there so that you can see a lot of the stunts that are going on. But um, but the TVs help with that. 
And, you know, and it's all in the midst of a museum uh, because that's, you know, I mean, there's, a, there's well over half a thousand attractions in the place. It, it truly is the only fully dedicated to variety um, stage in the country. And that's not to knock anybody else who features some of this type of performance. The neighborhood is is long way from completely gentrified. Yeah. I've seen words like seedy, rough, scary, and yep. I, I will quite agree with that. You've got a cab on call? There was a time when if what you did was call from any place on H Northeast for a cab, they might tell you, yeah, but what they meant was no. <laughs> right. But not anymore. Um, when you go out there, even on a fairly slow night, say, you know, like a Monday or Tuesday night, there's people on the street. And I don't mean, you know, people trying to knock you on the head either. And what's really funny is a lot of the other businesses are starting to be open. When, um, when right before the club opened up, right before uh, the palace opened up, I mean, Jill literally lived at the place as much as, I mean, and she's, she, drives nowhere she doesn't you know she doesn't drive to any great extent it's always you know she takes her bike and she lived over on you which for those who aren't familiar with dc is really a mile or two away i mean it's it's a bit of a bike every night she's leaving the palace before it opened up at two and three o'clock in the morning having worked on setting the place getting it because she was the interior designer for the joint and now she's back with Tyler um, doing all the booking in the place. I mean, that schedule is in no small, to no small extent the result of her and Tyler Fire. I, I mean, they, they're really the ones who knew all the performers, who got them in, who booked. I mean, they're the ones who, who were doing it. And she used to leave at 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning, and people would ask her, Christ, aren't you scared to death to be biking away from this place at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning? And she was like, no, I have never been screwed with coming or going to this place. And I mean, for those of you who want to see Jill, you know, Jill, all you got to do is go to the site, not hard on the eyes. Yeah. And nobody ever screwed with her. And yeah, I mean, you're seeing a lot less of like, gee, every other place is a check cashing joint. Well, what can you say about new sideshow, new burlesque, new vaudeville? People have finally gotten the idea they don't have to recreate the old days like uh, uh, a preserved in amber, mm-hmm. one of those This Is Burlesque shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got fringe people willing to get up in front of people uh, and, and do things mm-hmm. uh, or pierce their bodies and, and show themselves off. And, and do, I, I don't know why anybody would want to eat cockroaches. But <laughs> for God's sake, they'll get up there and do it. Uh, but it's, an, it's a new crew, and it's kind of a new paradigm. Yeah. Oh, no, it is entirely. Well, I mean, what a lot of people forget is is that if you want a show in amber, if, if you want a recreation, great, fine. I've, I've no problem with that. I think what people don't realize is, is that that's what they think they want. The reality is much more sobering. I've seen old burlesque. I've seen old sideshow. You know, you can find the footage. Some of it's patently amazing, and some of it is stinky. I mean, some of it just ain't good. I watched some footage of old burlesque that was just embarrassing. If you put it up there today, it would be like, oh, God, you got to be kidding. I'm supposed to pay for this? By the same token, you can't, if you're being true to your time, unless you literally do a slavish recreation, you can't be true to your time and really get anywhere near what an old-time show was. That's one of the reasons why some of the people whose shows I like the most 
have reinvented it in such a way that it still capitalizes on the best of what the old-time stuff was, but it acknowledges that we're in the 21st century, and it acknowledges that there's been a lot of history go down since the old days of the sideshow business. And you watch guys like Harley, and you watch guys like Todd, and you watch guys like Sideshow Benny, and even you watch Johnny Fox, and you watch all these characters, and they all bring things to the acts that that speak, I think, to the best of what the business has always been about, which is capitalizing not just on what what makes people sick or what makes people go, oh, how can you do that? Or what the hell are you doing? But that make people leave the show going, I can't believe I watched somebody do what they just did. And yet there is a slot for a whole range of people from the really ultra, like an enigma, or people oh, yeah. with a, a zillion piercings are willing to do yep. really shocking things, to uh, these, a lot of these girls that are, are doing really fine burlesque acts oh, now I, yeah, oh, yeah. are oh, the yeah. same people behind the window at the DMV, 9 to 5, Monday to yeah. Friday. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. See, burlesque, I think, at some levels, well, the whole business, it, it, but burlesque, I think, especially, because the explosion occurred in burlesque before it happened in Sideshow and before it happened in the new vaudeville. The women took over the business. Uh, in the old days, you know, it's not that there weren't women who were powerful in the business, but essentially it was a male-driven institution. I mean, the guys hired the women, the guys owned the clubs with some few exceptions. Nowadays, I, I think essentially the guys don't have a clue how to, how to address the business, and they certainly don't own the business in any regard. The women do. But a lot of the women who are getting into it you know, in the last 10 or 12 or 15 years, they've had to reinvent it from what they could read and what they could watch on film. And I think it's a credit to all of them that, that they've managed to remake the business for the 21st century. I think there are a lot of people who are in it and a lot of places you'll go to watch it that are pretty sad um, because I, I think that, that some of it is seen more of as, as an empowerment thing than as, damn it, I've got to put on a great show. But it's like that in any of the entertainment business, I mean, any, any aspects of it. You, you, you know, I mean, how much dinner theater do you have to go to before you realize, you know, it ain't all good? That covered a point I was going to get to. The only new burlesque I've seen was pretty sad. But yeah, I've only seen be. one. I've only seen one evening. But, but then I see uh, people like Devon Foxy's and the, their video that's on the web, and I'm blown away. Yeah, I'll tell you, if, if you want to see what the business can be. You've got to go see some of the hardcore stuff up in New York. You've got to watch Trixie Little and the Evil Hate Monkey. You've got to watch um, uh, the Pontani Sisters. Uh, Dirty Martini, who's out of New York, is amazing. Uh, just an incredible act. But you can see a lot of crap. But I would argue you can go to you know, some of the new sideshow and see crap. I mean, sure. you can see it. You can Which see guys who basically can. think yeah. that it's all about shocking people. And they're usually the ones who get the most pissed off when what they think people are doing by, in quotes, revealing the secrets of the sideshow. They're usually the first ones to get pissed off because their first thought is, well, how are we going to impress anybody with this act if like, you're telling them how it's done? Because they're still not going to want to do it, you asshole. And besides, <laughs> if you ain't making it entertaining enough, above and beyond the fact that there's a gross element to it, you ain't doing a good show anyway. 
So I, I just, I mean, you watch a guy like Todd Robbins get up there and do what, what Captain Don Leslie, for example, used to say about the, about the Human Blockhead Act. I mean, when he was interviewed for the research uh, publication, um, uh, Modern Primitives, years ago, he literally, in that interview, talked about some unbelievably stomach-turning aspects of the business, because Captain Don was hardcore. I mean, he was one of those old guys that learned how to swallow swords by just ramming it down your throat, you know, yep. and, and gee, it's not, you're not doing it right unless you draw blood, you know, I mean, he's one of those kind of guys in the old days. And he literally, for that interview, would not describe the Human Blockhead Act, would not tell them the pattern. He wouldn't do it. He said, I think it's a vulgar, adult act. I do it. I do it for adult audiences only. That's the way it is. I'm not telling you about the act. And I'm sitting there thinking, Christ, you can see the Human Blockhead Act in any bar you go to anywhere in the U.S. any night because somebody's doing it for drinks. And if you want to pull the act off, you have to be able to make it entertaining. So here you go. you got a guy who's doing an act that Captain Don Leslie would not even describe for the research publication Modern Primitives. And you've got Todd Robbins doing it literally for any age group, any audience on stage as part of his show. That's the truism that is all over uh, the magic business and everything else. You can yeah. do the best double lift and fool magicians, but if you can't entertain an nope. audience, you're nothing. Nope. Kiva Call, who's Grinder Girl on David Letterman, her line when we were interviewing her, her line was that, that the longer she worked at Coney Island, she'd see how long she could be up on stage doing effectively nothing and not lose the audience. And that's, and that's something that, uh, un- unless you can do as a performer, you're lost before you even get into it. You, you know, it, as, as Johnny Mia put it, he says, you know, he says, once you swallow the sword, they've seen you swallow the sword. Your act's over unless you can make it entertaining. Where do you go from here? <laughs> <laughs> Onward, volume 10, that's where I go. <laughs> All right. I, I'd love to see the palace be even more successful than it is. I think it has mathematical limitations, um, which is no news to the owners. I mean, part of the reason it's it has such a savagely frequent and varied variety schedule is because it's got to. Um, the minute you start getting lazy at the palace, you are losing money, which I think is a good thing. Um, because it keeps everybody on their toes. You know, say a, a typical performer for a show wants to get, you know, a grand, grand and a half. I mean, that would be nice. They don't always get it, but, you know, that's what a lot of this variety talent would like to get and would really deserve minimum. Palace gets 100 people in. It's 15 bucks on the door, which is starting to talk kind of steep on the door. Well, 100 times 15 is 1,500. So the palace has always got to be on its toes to give the performers what they need and to, you know, keep everybody happy. Well, it might be that you need to remember that you personally are not empty-handed in the absence of your memorabilia and curios. Oh, no. You've got, you've got a lot of savvy. You've got the contacts. And, mm. and you're at the cutting edge of things right now. Mm. I think I just have a great Rolodex. And I think I know a lot of people who know how to make things happen that I like to see and I like to experience. And as, as I've gone through dealing with the business, I've realized that where I've been 
beneficial or, in quotes, on the cutting edge, invariably it's been because I've tried to put people together who might not be together otherwise. Well, and what else? The, networking is a short and a dull word to describe uh, that you have the contacts and the savvy. What else did, uh, say, Fari Ackerman have? <laughs> what did he have other than a Rolodex and some savvy? Hey, let me tell you, Fari Ackerman's my hero, man. I, I just, I, I, I have often said that if what post post my demise, if what somebody at some point in time decides to call me is the Forrest J. Ackerman of the Sideshow, I would consider myself as highly honored as it was possible to be considered. The, the things he connected and the people he connected care of, just all that he did, above and beyond famous monsters of film land and all the rest of it, it was always just a kindness from the man and always like, oh, you know who you ought to talk to and was always giving you all this information and telling you all these things. And it, it's just, that's, that's, a th that's a thing to be. That's well, a like thing you, to be. as much as anything, he knew everybody. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, God, yes. And believe me, I, whenever I hear about a new show, a new crop of people, it may take me a while, but I try to get in touch with them. I try to give them the tip of the hat. I try to, to make myself known to them if they don't know me already. Um, well, I guarantee it's appreciated. Well, and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm always amazed when people, continually, I'm always amazed when people have heard of me, always amazed when people know what I do. You know, a lot of the talent is... 10, 15, 20 years my junior or more. I mean, I'm old enough to be the father to some of the people in the business now and some really good people in the business. The point was always to report on it and to, to, to let people in on an end of the business they might not have been able to get in on otherwise. James Taylor, uh, you've been tremendously generous with your time. Oh, I, you. We're at the two-hour mark. i got to cut this down some. <laughs> uh, I, I really do appreciate it, and I appreciate also all you're doing for the field. You entertain some people and see to it that they're entertained awfully well. Oh, I, I thank you for that. But uh, got to emphasize, though, uh, without the business, I couldn't be doing this, and I'm having the time of my life. Good to know. I'll talk to you again. Thank you, sir. You betcha. Bye-bye.
shelter from what is seen. It's the way we tell ourselves that all these things are normal till we can't remember what we mean. It's the flicker of our flame. Hey, it's just born to live in. It's the way we beat a hot retreat and heave our smoking guns into the Cast is produced by Wayne Kaiser for Blue Ridge Entertainment under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. That means you can keep it, copy it, share it with a friend, just tell them where it came from, don't change it, and don't sell it. If you enjoyed it, you can subscribe at BalletCast.com. And please also see our web sales and support site, GoodMagic.com. Visit us, link to us, subscribe to the podcast, and most importantly, enjoy. It's but a short step to the boat, a short pull across the river. And then? And then I promise you, you'll dream a different story altogether.